0: I just did it, so yeah, it's okay. All right, can everyone hear me okay? Fantastic. Well, let me offer a quick word of prayer, and then we'll start our time in the book of Joshua. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your many graces and provisions, and uh, let it let it be that if uh, we are doing well and um, being blessed, or at least are content with the circumstances that uh, we can proclaim you have dealt kindly with us. And Lord, when things get difficult, as I'm sure they will, and uh, we are put in that position to trust as you to still be content and say that you have dealt with us well. Um, but Lord, I, I certainly appreciate when there's those moments where we can take a breath and perhaps enjoy a moment. Uh, at the same time, knowing that others are suffering and going through hardship, both in our church family and all across the world. And of course, we uh, still continue to pray for those believers in uh, Ukraine who have been displaced and uh, put in great distress because of the war um, that is raging there. At the same time, we pray uh, that the pastors and ministers of the gospel would continue to be able to serve and give in in practical ways, as well as to uh, minister with the word of God and uh, preach the gospel. And we we pray for the same, frankly, in Russia and all parts of the world, that uh, there are your people in all of these places around the world. And uh, we ask that they'd be faithful to continue to point others to Christ, and no matter where we are, what's going on around us, we always need to know you. We always need to remember that you are the one that's in control, and uh, that the battles that are going on um, are not exactly what they seem, as we'll see today. So we pray, Lord, your blessing uh, on the Church Universal, even as we thank you for the many blessings here at ICC, and we ask that you would um, help us by the power of your spirit to draw closer to you, understand you better and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, we are in Joshua chapter 6, which is probably one of the most well-known stories of the Old Testament, and certainly in the book of Joshua, it's one of the most iconic scenes. We're going to talk about the fall of Jericho, likely in two parts, um, because Uh, We're going to get into some issues towards the end of the chapter about devoting things to destruction and so on. But for now, we are going to begin in Joshua chapter 6. And let me read the passage for you. We'll go through basically verses 1 through 17. Joshua 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And Yahweh said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, <clears throat> and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Yahweh. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of Yahweh. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before Yahweh went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumps blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of Yahweh to encircle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of Yahweh, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Yahweh walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of Yahweh while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into into the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, "'Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city.'" and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Now, we ended Joshua chapter 5 with Joshua speaking with the commander of Yahweh's army, and uh, we said last time that Um, My belief is, and uh, many other theologians and pastors would agree, that this commander of Yahweh's army was none other than Jesus Christ himself. And there we have the most important clue as to what will be the source of Joshua's victory. It will be faith in God. That God is going to lead in the victory. And if you notice... The commander of Yahweh's army doesn't show up at all for any of this. So we also know that this is not about a show of power or of might, nor does he seem to fight at all with any kind of, you know, soldierly sort of um, depiction. We see this kind of unorthodox war strategy, frankly, throughout the Old Testament. We see the truth of Zechariah 4.6. It is not by might nor by power But my spirit says Yahweh of hosts, and hosts means the armies of angels. In other words, that when God fights, he doesn't fight with a superior force of arms. When he fights, Hosea 1.7 says, um, I will save them, not by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen, If you put that in our modern context, so you just imagine any general of our time standing before, you know, his a great parade of soldiers and tanks and armaments, jet fighters flying overhead, uh, you know, hundreds of helicopters buzzing around like, like bees. And just imagine a general with all of these great armies behind him saying, now, it is not by these means and instruments that I'm going to fight this war. In fact, I'm going to win this war by myself. And not by my own fighting prowess, but the strength of my character and reputation and will alone. And you would say, well, that's this person's uh, a lunatic. How did he get promoted <laughs> You know, to, to be the five-star general of this army? It, it would be almost ludicrous, and yet this is God's strategy. We talked a little bit about this this morning. The the, the key purpose for which God does anything is what will glorify him? And what would glorify God the most is if he won battles, he won wars, without the ways, without the means that we would think someone is to fight and win wars. Now, to be fair, it's not that God never uses wars and battles, even in the Bible. I mean, Joshua is going to fight, and the armies are going to fight. We'll see the judges fight. Even King David would fight. But the condition for the military success, because there are times, and we saw this in, in Samuel when we're looking at it, there are times when Israel had the manpower, they had the overwhelming force, and they still lost. Which is to say, it always, no matter even if, if wars and battles were fought, the, the, the condition of the success was always faith. Always trust in God. And when we come to the New Testament, it's clear that the kingdom of God, it's not advanced through war, at least not in any fleshly uh, weapons. But the battle for souls is won by faith, by prayer, by daily acts of trust in God, and acts of sacrifice and love. And we'll get to that at the end. But <clears throat> I do think one of the one of the key things thoughts and ideas as we read Joshua, and as we see here, has to be this notion. Like, when God is your commander, your leader, your king, when you say that God is the one in charge of your life, you are believing that he has to win the battle, and he is going to win it his way. God's going to win the battle, and he's going to win it his way. So, in life, you're, you know, unless you've been in the military you're planning on being in the military you're probably not ever going to be in a situation where um you're you're going to be like a soldier and so some of these analogies might not necessarily make sense to you but just practically speaking today tonight if god is in charge of your life he intends for you to live your life to to, to overcome temptation, to overcome sin, to overcome your laziness, to overcome your anger, to overcome your pride. He is going to win that battle and you are gonna win that battle only if you do it his way. So it's, God is not, as very important. It's not just that, okay, God helps me to overcome my challenges in life, period. As if God is just gonna give you the tanks, and the the, the weapons that you need, spiritually speaking. No, God is going to win that battle if you do it his way. And how do you know what his way is? The word of God. So we'll see, it gets repetitive, uh, if you notice, even in the text. How many times did you hear seven trumpets? You know, the ram's horns, you know, the ark of Yahweh and the priests. Was it very repetitive when I read it? Yeah, it gets even more repetitive uh, if you go on. Why do we keep repeating the same thing? Well, it's, it's exactly to communicate, and we've seen this before, God tells Joshua. Joshua tells the people, and the people do it. And you see this very clear line that what God told Joshua to do, Joshua did. And then when Joshua communicated to the people, he told them exactly what God said and how to do it, and then they did it. So that repetition is to tell us by, by way of uh, reading it, by way of reciting it, that exactly God's word is what they kept. And it's one of those unique times in Israel's history where they do actually keep every single part of God's word. And we see the amazing blessing that comes through with that. Now, when we come to Jericho, we see when they say that Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel, Jericho was a very unique city in that they could be buttoned up Pretty tight, and you will see. I forgot to get a pointer. I'll just use my finger. Okay, so that. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? Well, uh, you can see the the titles. You have this uh, retaining wall. That's just all that revetment means. Is there's a retaining wall, right? And it holds a layer of dirt in, upon which you see that outer ring of city and buildings and structure. Um, that's what it's built on. Is what the retaining wall is holding in is the dirt. And then you have this mud brick wall that is built on the outside of this lower ring. Um, And uh, uh, we'll get the measurements. Let me see here. Okay, Uh, a six-foot-thick lower wall um, on the bottom, very thick. And uh, I don't know why I didn't measure the height there, but uh, fairly, very tall. You get a sense of the scale. You see him over here? (laughs) This is the man. All right, so that wall is, you know, let's say like five times bigger than him. Um, And then you have another wall. So there's a retaining wall um, uh, above that, or not a retaining wall, but another upper wall of mud brick above that, and then really the city proper, and I believe it's about six acres that that upper city occupied. So in terms of size, about about six acres. Now, you would probably get a sense that who would live in these lower wall parts. It would be kind of the lower class citizens, and people like prostitutes, like Rahab. And um, we're going to get a little bit into the uh, archaeological evidence, but this is what the ancient city of Jericho would look like. You have this retaining wall, then you have this lower mud brick wall, and then this upper mud brick wall, and then the city proper above that. And Jericho was perfectly set up to withstand uh, what is called a siege. Now, in those days, siege warfare was kind of the name of the game. Every city would have some kind of wall, maybe not as extensive as Jericho, um, but oftentimes the strategy in those days, if you're coming against a city like this, is that you would lay a siege. You'd cut off the city from any kind of supplies, food and water mainly, right? And you would essentially try to starve out your opponents, um, really, all you had to do was live longer and, and, and be fed better than the people inside. Now, of course, if you're on the outside, you can get as much food and water as you want. So those people inside, you just had to wait. It's, in terms of um, manpower, if you're patient, almost always the, the attacker kind of had a, a little bit of an advantage, unless the city was well-supplied. The city was well-supplied, it could withstand a siege. And uh, you, could even <laughs> you could even outlast a surrounding uh, army because, frankly, at some point, they have to get food and, and things as well. And if they, they start getting antsy and they get tired, they're sitting in front of the last, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a former army guy, the last thing you want is bored soldiers. Bored soldiers, they get into lots and lots of trouble. And so you could actually get a lot of trouble uh, if you had a bunch of soldiers sitting around doing nothing. Um, They get antsy and so on. So there were times that you could outlast the attackers if you're well-supplied. And guess what? We read in Joshua 3 that the harvest had just come in. They find abundant archaeological evidence that there's a lot of grain in the city. Not only that, there was a well inside the city. We We actually, I think it still exists to this day. So if you have a lot of grain... And if you have a well, you could outlast the siege. Now, what they would do then, attacking armies to kind of speed along the process, what they would do is uh, bring siege weapons, which would be things like uh, trebuchets and, and ladders. And sometimes they would even fling diseased corpses into the wall. Why? Because that would spread disease. And so you're hoping that they will just all die of of a of a plague or of a mal, uh, not only malnutrition but some kind of a pandemic, <clears throat> but hey, you would want to be careful about that kind of tactic too. Because if you really want to conquer the city, do you want everything all diseased and decayed and a lot of dead bodies? Maybe not. So in any case, in siege warfare, um, there was a lot of um, there could be a lot of advantage for the attackers. But in the case of Jericho, they had a lot. Of advantages. In fact, this looked impenetrable. The Israelites did not have weapons of siege warfare. Um, they didn't have any fancy equipment. They had been wandering in the desert. It's not like they'd been building all these big weaponry, dragging it through the desert. They really had nothing with which to engage in siege warfare. And so this city, which was already nestled on a hill, already surrounded by these huge, so the lower wall is six feet thick. Six feet thick, the upper wall is 12 feet thick, right? So we're talking about thick and high, Um, a spring well supplied. There would not be any feasible way except maybe hoping to starve out this city in order to conquer it. So, what is the strategy? It's absolutely, decisively, completely off the wall, you know, pun intended. It's just, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think of this strategy at all. It's based really entirely on a faith and trust that the commander-in-chief, God himself, is going to do something miraculous. And so I'm sure you caught it, but basically for six days, the army and the people would go around and march around the city walls. They would have the Ark of Yahweh. Remember, the Ark represents God's presence and his power. The priests would be blowing their ram's horns, and the whole host of them would be going around the city once a day, early in the morning. And it wouldn't really take too long because, again, it's about six acres at the top, so a little bit bigger than that, and you could do that in a day. It's a nice hike. But on the seventh day, they would do it seven times, and on the seventh time, when the priests would blow their horns, Joshua was going to give a command, and they were to shout. And upon shouting, the walls were going to come down. And the question is, did they do it? Well, in this case, not only do we have the word of God that speaks very clearly to the fact that they did, we even have biblical, I mean, archaeological evidence that demonstrates exactly, exactly this level of destruction Exactly this description of the walls blowing outward. So, um, yeah, let's do the video. Hopefully this works. This is the ancient site of Jericho. The Bible says that Jericho is the city whose walls came tumbling down. Archaeologist Dr. Bryant Wood has spent over 20 years studying the material excavated from Jericho.
1: This is where the mud brick wall was located, right here on top of this stone retaining wall. This is the stone retaining wall which held in place the earthen embankment that surrounded the city. And on top of the stone retaining wall was the mud brick wall. And on the seventh trip around, we're told in the Bible, the mud brick wall collapsed and it fell outward and down to the base of the stone retaining wall. And when the archaeologists dug in this area, they found this pile of mud bricks all the way along the retaining wall.
0: One of the archaeologists that found these collapsed bricks is Peter Parr, who excavated Jericho in the 1950s.
1: Yes, there were remains of the mud brick that had fallen down. I mean that wall came tumbling down. This find of a collapsed city wall found here at Jericho is unique in archaeology. At no other site have we found evidence for a city wall that has fallen down.
0: Since the details in the text match so well with the archaeological evidence found here, then the best conclusion that we can draw is that at the time of Joshua's conquest, the walls of Jericho really did come tumbling down. The Bible says, the people shouted, all the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Dr. Kenyon, who is a very famous archaeologist, archaeologist, she wrote in her excavation report of Jericho, the destruction was complete. Walls and floors and were blackened or reddened by fire, and every room was filled with fallen bricks, timber, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt. And you'll see that later, that they burned everything in Jericho. Now, what is unique, as he said, is, is that the walls had fallen down. But what's extra unique about that in this city um, is again realize that that there's no reason if you're sieging a city there's no reason to knock down all the walls right you just need the section a section of it that you're going to uh, maybe go up into so the fact a that all of the walls fell down at once but also that they fell down all outwardly in other words there was no siege weapon that could do that that's like you know a movie <laughs> you know some kind of destructive power of some uh, some movie weapon Uh, And there's no evidence of an earthquake, because if you had an earthquake, um, there would have been, um, you know, the the damage would have been uh, more than just the walls, let's say, and they would have fallen in all kinds of, you know, different directions, not all completely outward. And so that's just archaeology. You can go there, and that's like indisputable archaeology. In fact, the only criticism that secular archaeologists make or try to make about that site is that, well, the thing is, the destruction there happened not in, say, 1400 B.C. or so, uh, but it happened in 1550 B.C. So they're going to try and date it to a time when it couldn't have possibly been the Israelites. And they say, oh, it was the Egyptians then and not the Israelites. But that, that is um, sometimes dating these sites. There's a lot of, uh, uh, of a fight about it. But uh, there's no record in the Egyptian records that they ever went and conquered Jericho but we have a very clear record that happens to match all of the archaeological data, and arguably, again, the way that they often date these sites is in dispute. It makes much more sense. The best explanation of all the data is that this happened. And again, it's bizarre. I mean, this is unprecedented in archaeological uh, finds, that all the walls, and they all blew outward, and it wasn't an earthquake. Like, how do you explain that? in any kind of reasonable way. Not only that, um, this, again, was one of those rare times where the people of God actually followed the instructions to a T, and they destroyed everything, and we'll see this, we're going to talk about it a little bit more next week, Um, but God basically says, destroy everything, but spare the silver, the gold, um, and the bronze and the iron. So both the people were destroyed, but also every other thing that was not silver, gold, bronze, iron. So that meant cattle, and that meant grain. So when they went to this site, there's actually a burn layer where there's like great devastation by fire. And one of the things, and you see that in verse 24, they burned the city with fire and everything in it. There's a distinct burn layer in in the archaeological evidence, and they found tons of grain that was burned. Uh, Why would that be significant? Well, if you're a conquering army and you're coming in, grain is very valuable. Would you just set it on fire? No, you would take that for your gigantic army to feed them, right? So it's very unusual to set grain on fire. Why would they do that? Because the Lord said, you shall devote everything to destruction except the gold, the bronze, the silver, and the iron. And they did. So they found tons of burnt grain there, just very bizarre uh, when, when you're thinking about, like, why would any army do this? Well, this was the Israelites following the command of God to a T. Now, when I say that all of the wall was destroyed, was all of the wall destroyed? Couldn't have been. Why? Because of Rahab. And in fact, there is a section of the northern wall of Jericho over here that did not fall. And you know what they find? So if you're looking at it from the outside, you would just see a wall. But if you look at it on the inside, you know what they find? They built houses into the wall just as it was described in the book of Joshua. And so you have every single wall destroyed at this archaeological site. All the walls are blown out except this one, this section on the northern side, which still remains standing. Well, what do we read here? Joshua said you devote the whole city to destruction only save Rahab and all who are with her in her house they shall live because if you remember she hid those spies back in Joshua chapter two I mean it's fascinating it's compelling I mean that's that you know that that, that's something that that ought to make you say that something significant happened I don't care if you're a stone-cold unbeliever when you see that and you read this you say wow you know that is a little bit more than coincidence, isn't it? We'll talk more about um, we'll talk more about Rahab and her family and what it means that she was spared out of the destruction of all people. We'll talk about why God would command that they would destroy everyone, including the 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 you know men and women, and we imply the children as well. What's going on there? And we're going to see that in other places too that God is going to command that the Israelites destroy. Even the children, is that inconsistent as Christians when we are here advocating against abortion and so on? Um, is, that, is that, you know, hypocritical? We'll, we'll talk about that next time so that'd be a large piece to sort of bite off um, today. But again, there's an obvious testament here to the truth of the Word of God even as we look at these artifacts of history. Now, when it comes to some applications... I mean, this is obviously not about military strategy. So if I was a general in the army, I would not say, all right, I got this crazy idea. But you know, in Joshua 6, you know, they just encircled this camp seven times. On the seventh day, they did seven times. I mean, this is not intended at all to be any kind of manual for modern militaries or ancient militaries for that matter. So let's get that out of our head that there's any kind of direct application to our lives, it's just not anything that we would expect uh, to repeat. But in terms of applications to you and I today, 2022, uh, in Southern California, Jericho does represent one of the most tremendous victories in the Bible. It's very startling, it's uh, one of the first and best examples of how God conducts warfare. Another notable examples, you remember Gideon and his 300 men. Uh, he's starting with 32,000, whittling it down. Um, they're armed with trumpets. If you remember that, it's not just that God whittled the, Gideon's army from 32,000 fighting men to 300. He also armed them with trumpets, clay pots, and lanterns. Remember David and Goliath, a boy with five stones and a sling versus a giant. And, of course, there's Armageddon where one man on a horse, Jesus Christ, he will be against all the armies of the world and he will slaughter them with his word alone. Now, when you think then of the great victories of the Bible, what do they have in common? Well, you know, we could go on and on, um, but here's my list. So, of course, you can come up with your own list of things that are just, you know, the way God does things. But, um, One thing is the the strategy, the strategy is often to us foolish, maybe even backwards. It's unexpected. It seems to rely on uh, weakness. It seems to rely on, because it's not a great show of strength. Actually, think about this. How vulnerable are they as they march around the city? If they had archers on their walls, they just, you are opening yourself up. They should have been... Decimated. Why did the people in Jericho did not fire upon them? It's probably because they feared the Israelites because the Israelites seemed to have this God behind them. So they dare not even attack them. But in any other kind of context, if you were sieging and the other army was just under your wall, walking around, you would just be chucking rocks and slinging arrows, pouring oil. It would have been an absolutely vulnerable position to put yourself in. And yet, the second thing in common with all the great victories of the Bible is that it's a complete blowout. It's not even fair. It's not even close. You don't read this and think, whew, almost, those, Jerichos, <laughs> those people in Jericho, they put up a real good fight, didn't they? I mean, it's not even close. It's a total blowout. It is 100% it seems like just victory without a loss or a casualty on the side of the Israelites. It's complete and total victory. Thirdly, and most importantly, and this is the only thing that can make sense of the first two similarities, it's clear that it's God who must fight for us. God is the one who must be for his people. Remember, we talked about uh, last time, the question isn't so much, is God on my side of this argument? Is God on my side of this particular fight that I'm engaged in? The question is, am I on God's side? (laughs) It's not that God is on the side of conservatives or on the side of Democrats, um, and that everyone claims God is on their side because they hold a certain position. The question is always, am I on God's side? Am I, you know, it's the, yeah, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the commander says, no, (laughs) not for you or for your adversaries. I am the commander of the army of Yahweh, and the implication is, are you with me? So, The only thing that can make sense of this completely unexpected, weak, vulnerable strategy and the fact that it's a complete, utter victory, it's to make it abundantly clear that it is all glory to God. This is the way that God maximizes his glory for himself, just like we talked about this morning. And of course, the greatest victory of the Bible, I would say this, every victory, every victory in the Bible points to the greatest victory of God in the Bible And that is the defeat of death by the death of Jesus Christ. And consider the the victory of the cross. It follows the same pattern. It's unexpected. It's foolish by the world's eyes. Paul says this looks like foolishness to the wise men of the world. It looks like a display of weakness when you say, here's how I'm going to win by losing. Here is the Son of God hanging upon a cross. It seems completely contrary to achieving any kind of victory. Be like, again, a general leading this army and says, here's my, here's my opening move. I'm going to enter into the camp of the enemy. I'm going to let them capture me and put me on display, mock me, and then string me up in front of the whole army. That's the plan. You say, well, that, can we have a second option, a second opinion on this battle plan? But this is how God chooses to show his true power as the one that we can have total faith in by doing the most losingest thing possible and still winning. That's how God proves that he is sovereign. That's how he proves he's not just the commander-in-chief of a few things and a few angels and a few hosts, but that he is the absolute Lord of the universe. And every knee bows to him that he is worthy of our worship and praise and adoration and trust because he took what is the most weakest thing, the most vulnerable thing, in our eyes maybe even the most foolish of things, God dying, and he turns that into victory. And that way, there is no way to give any kind of glory to man. Joshua, he can't claim that he is a great and wonderful man. And again, it's not to preclude that there are men like David who's going to be even praised by God. And actually, Joshua gets praised by God. But there's nothing about this that would make you say, Whoa, Joshua, you are such a great leader. You're such a brilliant military mind. There's nothing about this that would tend towards Joshua himself saying, well, a lot of glory is going to go to me for this because because i'm so good at walking around you know a city wall all he can say was the lord commanded and i submitted i obeyed and he brought the victory god gets all the glory gilbert k chesterton said i love this the cross cannot be defeated for it is defeat (laughs) it's just such a funny thought like the way that God shows he is indomitable, unstoppable, unbeatable, is that he took defeat and won with it. So he cannot be defeated. What can you do against a God who can take the lowest, most ridiculous defeat and turn it into victory? This is how God wants us to live our lives. God wants us to adopt a strategy That is going to be totally contrary to our own selfish designs, counter to seeking our own pride and glory, and instead to to draw us towards selfless service, obedience, submission, humility before God. And when you think about it, if you want to experience a complete and total victory over the temptations and sins in our lives, he is wants us to adopt his radical strategy of saying, actually, you need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross and follow me. And there is no 12-step plan to victory. Over and over again, we have this refrain that we must trust God. We must obey him. What he's already said, what he's already done have faith in Jesus that he won the victory. So if he won the victory, all I need to do is, is follow him and trust him. Now, that doesn't mean that it's easy to do that. I, on the other hand, I will say it takes a great deal of effort to crucify our flesh. The easiest thing in the world should be that we would not want to sin right? That, that should make the most sense. I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to hurt other people. I don't want to lie to people. I don't want to do anything that might make anyone else feel bad. I don't want to do anything that would make me feel bad or, or, or guilty or wrong or ashamed. And yet that is the depth of our sin, is that we would still pursue those things. So it's not easy. Don't, don't hear me say that it is easy, but the strategy is, the strategy is, I submit every thought to the Lord, Worldly strategies will fail me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, speaking of the warfare that that we as Christians now engage in. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 and 6, Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. See, the the world has its way of dealing with problems. You know, there's Um, You know, it changes what's in vogue and and what's popular and what's not for a season. You know, the way you deal with problems is you bottle them up way down deep inside. You don't tell anyone. That's, you know, that's kind of the the culture at the time. Even in churches, you don't tell anyone your problems and issues. Now it's almost like kind of the opposite is I'm going to tell you all of my junk and you have to accept me as I am. You don't get to judge me. You don't get to make me feel bad. I am who I am, you take me as I am, and it's almost kind of the opposite, you know. <laughs> I got to bottle up because people are going to judge me or think ill of me, so I have to pretend like everything's okay, and now it's, well, I'm going to tell you every single horrible, wicked thing I do, and you need to pat me on the back and accept it and embrace it as, it's, as if it's okay. Well, no, those are worldly strategies. The weapons of our warfare should not ever look like the things that the world does to address their issues. Whether it's trying to find your purpose and worth and what other people are saying and how many clicks you get on social media, or whether it's, you know, I'm going to shop, you know, I can buy anything on Amazon right now. I can buy it on credit, and I'll just click, 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 and, you know, if this makes me happy, I'll buy it. Whatever it is, that's all worldly strategies to find contentment, joy, peace, happiness to overcome sin and temptation no the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds strongholds of what of the mind strongholds of of thoughts in the culture you know again we've been saying it a lot lately but there is a a thought in the culture that's prevailing just the the, the the violence is somehow okay for whatever reason. Maybe it's people think that, you know, the police are not going to do anything. Maybe it's people are just venting and they're, they're out of control and they can't contain it anymore. But we have this uh, thought that's out there of, of, of doing violence and harm. That will make me feel better. That is a thought. I mean, we can, I <laughs> don't want to get too political, but we can control all the guns that are out there. But that's not going to change a human heart. And I'm not saying that there should not be, you know, you know, gun control. It's not about that, all right? The point is, though, if you start to say that the way that, that people are going to change in their soul is by removing those uh, temptations, it's to not understand that the battle is really in the heart and in the soul, And we have the power as Christians to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And that we have an obligation and duty to take those thoughts that are contrary to God, take them prisoner, subjugate them, bring them into submission to Christ. There is an evidence here of what God can do. Um, When we saw that video and that picture of Jericho Decim- decimated and uh, even by the virtue of the fact that those are recent relatively recent pictures is there anyone living at jericho right now no <laughs> and and in fact uh, the lord says in joshua no one's ever going to live here again and that has been the case I mean, people live sort of on the outskirts but that that spot no one no one lives there maybe you got a few goats or something grazing on that mountain but no one lives there anymore God wants to have that kind of victory in your life over the sins that are besetting you. But the way to victory is submission, is humility, is trusting what Jesus has done in obtaining the victory and to set our mind on those things. And as we set our mind on those things, we destroy and take captive those thoughts that are contrary. Because the real problem is not The Canaanites, the real problem is not that, you know, there are people out there in the world who are not Christian who think differently than you. That's not your problem right now. The real problem is the sin in your heart. The real problem is your soul needing to be more and more like Jesus. Because when it's more and more like Jesus and you gain victory over your own life, you'll be able to deal with whatever's going on around you whatever your you know, neighbors are doing, whatever the people in office are doing, whatever violent acts those criminals are doing, you will be able to deal with, address, seek and glorify God in your life circumstances if you get victory over your own heart. And you can, and that is the promise of God. If we submit to him, if we acknowledge him, if we take hold every thought captive to him, if we know him, better than we know the world if we trust him better than we trust ourselves if we are ready to punish every disobedience when our obedience is complete meaning that we are always seeking to be in obedience to god and submitted to him not as a works thing not trying to earn his favor but because i want to (laughs) I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want to disobey. I don't want to mess up other people's lives. I don't want to mess up my own life. And it takes an attitude of wanting to punish disobedience, take captive those hostile thoughts, and to walk in trust and obedience to the Lord. Now, if you're not a Christian, I think one of the scariest things is that um, you're in a warfare. You don't even realize I mean, you might think it's scary that, that people across the world are facing artillery attacks and tanks and, and you know, uh, missiles and all these things. And now, you know, you're scared for even walking down the street that some, someone might drive by and, and shoot you or do some harm to you. That is not the greatest danger of your life. The greatest danger of your life is the spiritual battle is the fact that if you were to die, which no one has really any say about when they die, even people who try to kill themselves don't always accomplish it. There's, there's plenty of stories like that. That we don't have control of that. Your life could be held into account right now, and you'd stand before God, and you would not be able to give any reason for why you should, you should be forgiven of your sins, why your sins should not be held against you. That is your greatest need and concern, the spiritual battle that you are fighting with God, ultimately, and God is saying, you know, I achieved victory by surrender, by Christ willingly surrendering himself to the cross, to the, to the shame and the punishment and pain of death. That is the example I'm setting for you. Surrender if you will give up your selfish pursuits Trying to deny who I am and my call upon your life. If you let that go, I will raise you up. I will glorify you. I'll give you everything you need, but you have to be willing to let go of everything you think you have. And you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, for your hope in this life, and God will receive you. That is the spiritual battle that you're that, that needs to concern you the most, no matter what's going on in the culture around you. And if you are a Christian, I hope that the, the very astonishing victory that God made in Jericho, even the physical evidence of it, would encourage your hearts to consider, well, in what areas of life is God calling me to submit, to humble myself, to obey? You know, the areas of my life where I've been trying to get the victory my own way, where I'm telling God what to do and how it's going to be so subtle, but anytime you're like, well, God, I will do this, if you do this. God, I will be a much better Christian and husband if my kids would just, or if my wife would just, or if my boss would just, or if situation was just. That is for you to tell the commander of Yahweh's army, who decimated the Jericho, uh, the city of Jericho, to tell him what his battle strategy should be. Well, that's folly. That's foolishness. Think about areas of your life, maybe, where you're telling God what to do, and then you will obey, rather than simply saying, God, what is it that you would have me to do? What, how am I to uh, humble myself? How am I to love you and serve you better or more? And I pray that, that you'd make that a prayer of your heart, remembering that God can do amazing things through simple acts of humility, faith, trust, and obedience. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, again, you didn't choose the, the wise of the world. But the lowly, you didn't choose the famous, the powerful, the strong, the mighty, the famous, the rich. But instead, you chose the despised and uh, the shameful in order to show your glory. In order to communicate to us, all we need is Christ. Just like we sang earlier, all I have is Christ. But if all I have is Christ, I have everything. I have the means to to not just um, you know, conquer cities, but maybe the even harder task, conquer my own sinful lusts and desires and temptations. So we do come to you and we ask, especially for those um, who feel like they are far off from you, that you might refresh our hearts and minds to consider, well, what does it mean to submit ourselves to you, to put you first, um, to make your priorities our priorities, and to uh, experience the joy of victory, in Christ. So thank you, Lord. We pray for our time together around the table and the food. Would you bless that as well, that it might be encouragement to our soul. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for joining us tonight.